with the religious leaders. And he, they're trying to trap him with these questions that they're asking. And he's answering them. And then he kind of stops the whole thing when he asks them a question that they can't answer. And it picks up in verse 38. As, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues in the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Kind of what's going on is the scribes, that's teachers of the law, they were scribes, and they were very highly respected in Jewish culture, and they wore white robes, these long white robes with tassels on them, and most regular folks didn't wear white. And so they stood out, and when they would walk down the road, everybody would stand up. And they had the titles, people called them father and rabbi and master. Uh, in the synagogue, they would sit up front facing the congregation instead of sitting among the people. And if you were having a banquet, um, having a scribe there was kind of it was a trophy. And so you would invite a scribe and you would give him a seat of honor, even more uh, a better seat than you would give your parents. And so these guys had a lot of public respect. And what's happening here is apparently all of that public recognition in public respect, is starting to corrupt the hearts of at least some of them. And they're using this platform they have, they're using their influence in some negative ways. Jesus talks, says this thing about making lengthy prayers, that's pretense. Uh, they're not praying to be heard by God, they're praying for people to hear them. And devouring widows' houses, it was um, against the law, the Jewish law, to be paid for teaching the law. So they, could, they weren't paid for teaching the law, and that's what their job was. So they lived on the gifts of other people. They relied on the generosity and the hospitality of other people to meet their needs. And apparently, it was um, quite a, uh, it was considered a pious act, very godly, to meet the needs of a scribe. And some of these guys were taking advantage of that and preying on widows, who would have been the most vulnerable members of society. They were taking advantage of the widows, leeching off of them, sponging off of them, whatever you want to say using the food, uh, using their money uh, to meet their own needs when they could not afford it. So that's kind of what's going on there. And what Jesus says to those guys, because these scribes have used their godliness, they've used this platform, this respect that they've been given, because they've used all of that to meet their own needs, both financial and uh, emotional or ego needs, they're going to be punished most severely. I think the Bible actually says they're going to receive a greater judgment. James 3.1 says that not many of you should be teachers because you'll be judged more strictly. And kind of the principle, the principle behind that is uh, influence. We all have influence, and God's going to hold us responsible for how we use it. Just a teacher, they're influencing their, this group of people who are listening to them, and God is going to hold them responsible for what they did with that influence. He says the same things to the scribes. Yes, they have this high position, and there's, there's their perks. You get these special clothes, and people say master, and they want to pay your bills, and they feed you, and all of this stuff. But with that comes the responsibility of what have you done with your influence. And because your hearts have been corrupted, and you're using your influence to meet your own needs, it's not going to be good for you. And the takeaway for, for us is we all have influence as well. Everybody in this room influences at least one other person. You influence your spouse, you influence your kids, you influence people at work, in social settings. You have influence. And God is going to ask you, what did you, what did you do with it? You might not have an official role as a teacher or whatever. 
in, a, in, a, in a religious organization or wherever you think influence comes from. You might not have positional influence, but you have relational influence, and God's going to want to know what you did with that. It's interesting to me, uh, starting next week, we're going to look at Mark 13, and it's all about kind of the end of the world and four horsemen and trumpets and bowls and how the whole thing is going to wrap up. And we're going to spend some time looking at that. And in that one chapter, it's about 37 verses, four different times Jesus uses the same word. Watch out. Beware. You need to be looking for this stuff. He says this in Mark 13, 5 and 6. Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I'm he and will deceive many. Mark 13, 22 through 23, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. So kind of wherever you stand on the continuum of end of the world, Jesus is coming back. We can all agree we're one day closer to whatever this is than we were yesterday. And tomorrow will be one day closer than we are today. And the next day will be one day. Whenever it is, if you want to read the tea leaves and Ezekiel and try to figure out, you know, the newspaper headlines and how all that stuff fits together. Wonderful. Um, whatever that day is, we can all agree we're getting closer and closer to it. And what Jesus especially emphasizes is that as we get closer to this time in history, the level of deception is going to increase dramatically. I know most of you, and if somebody showed up in a red suit with a pointy tail and a pitchfork, they're not going to lead you astray. It's not going to happen. You see that coming. If somebody comes and they've got 666 tattooed across their forehead, you're probably not going to follow them around. Those aren't the kind of people who are going to deceive us. And Jesus, again, talks very strongly about who, us being deceived and how real the possibility of that is. And to me, it's not going to be, again, it's not going to be a guy with horns and a tail who deceives us. It's going to be someone who looks like us, talks like us, has similar values to us, and they're, they're off just a little bit. They have enough credibility that we're willing to invest our trust in them. We're willing to open our lives and allow ourselves to be influenced by them, and they're going to take us down the wrong road. I don't know if you've ever considered this question. What type of person are you most easily swayed by? What type of person tends, do you tend to give trust to the most quickly? The negative side of that is what type of person is going to have the easiest time deceiving you? Is it an intellectual, somebody with PhD after their name or doctor in front of their name? Is it someone who's kind of a smooth talker and they have this great presentation? Is it someone who has this track record and they, you can see these results and you're a results-oriented person? You maybe tend to overlook some things because... The results are there. Is it someone with a lot of passion? You get wrapped up in passion and maybe you lose some of the details because you're so fired up because they're so fired up. Like for me, it's underdogs. That's, that's who gets me. I hate Duke. I hate the New England Patriots, the New York Yankees, the Miami Heat, all front runners. I don't want anything to do with them. Underdogs. That's, those guys get in. I, I give them a pass. I didn't like Bill Gates when he was at the top of the world. Now I don't like Steve Jobs. And I, it's just how it is for me. I'm all, whoever's next, I don't want, whoever's up there, I'm going to pull for this guy down here. And those, if, you're, if, if there's an enemy out there, and there is, and he's trying to deceive me, and he is, the way to get me to overlook some things is tell me a good story. 
from an under, show me the underdog, and I'll be willing to overlook a lot of things because I'm naturally drawn to those kind of folks. That doesn't mean every underdog is trying to lead me astray. Not at all. But it does mean I need to be smart enough to recognize who, kind of, who circumvents my natural defenses, my, the normal checks that I might go through before I would allow somebody to influence me. An underdog kind of gets around all of those. So for you, who influences? Who do you allow to influence you easily? That's the type of person who could deceive you. Again, not all of those people will, but it's important for us to know, moving, again, wherever this day is, we're getting closer, and you can bank on the level of deception to increase. The enemy masquerades as an angel of light. Again, not like a dude with a pitchfork. That's not what the Bible says he looks like. And his desire is to lead us astray if possible. And the way he's going to do that is somebody, again, I think, who we naturally relate to. That's the easiest way to get in. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This story, to me, it's an odd placement. I don't, I don't get why this story is here. Starting in about halfway through Mark 8, the whole trajectory of the Gospel of Mark changes. Beforehand, it's parables, a lot of miracles. The kingdom is demonstrated and hinted at. Then Jesus in Mark, or excuse me, Peter in Mark 8 says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you're right. And he takes on this renewed intensity um, and intentionality in saying to the disciples, this is what I'm looking for. This is what it means to follow me. His sermons tend to get longer and they're directed straight at the disciples. He's trying to give them some stuff before he leaves. And it, all of that culminates in this section. There's a big, there's a, again another hard shift starting in 13.1 and so this is the culmination of this whole section of Mark and it doesn't make sense to me why who, who cares? All right, It's a sweet story with the widow. So there's Jesus is sitting on this bench looking at these 13 silver receptacles where people came and dropped their offerings. It, to me it looks like he's sitting by himself his 12 disciples are not with him and he's just watching people put money in the trumpet things. I think they were shaped like trumpets. He's just watching these guys put money in, and he sees this woman put in, and he says, two very small copper coins. That's what Mark says. If a, a denarius is worth a day's wages. What this woman put in, it was a L-E-P-T-O-N. It was a lepton. It was worth about six minutes of work. So if a denarius is what you get paid for a day, what she put in was what you would get for 12, 12 minutes worth of work. It's, it's less than a penny. It's nothing. And he watches her drop it into this receptacle. And then to me, it looks like he calls the disciples over to point out what she's done and say, do you see this? Do you see what she's done? And then he makes this ridiculous statement. It's, I don't, it's, it's almost, I mean, obviously it's true because he's Jesus and he doesn't lie. But he says she put in more money than everybody else. In what world is a penny worth more than $100? Who takes that deal? I'll offer you a nickel or I'll offer you $500. Who takes a nickel? Nobody, because it's less money. But Jesus says she put in more. 
there's a different accounting system going on there. So there's this contrast that he's pointing out with this widow and saying what she's doing is different from what these rich people are doing. She's given more than they have. So there's, she's given almost nothing monetarily. They've given massive amounts monetarily, but she's given more. Why? Because it's an expression of faith. She gave all she had. Theirs is not an expression of faith because why? They gave out of their excess or out of their ample supply, I think is what the Bible says. The difference there is, is an expression of faith. So if God has an accounting ledger, the, the little old lady just made a huge deposit. And these rich people didn't make a deposit. At all. They didn't put anything in, in God's perspective. I'm sure the leaders of the temple were more than happy to take their money because it pays the bills. And her little penny doesn't seem to pay the bills. But from God's perspective, she's the one that made the deposit. They didn't deposit anything because there was no trust involved. There was no act of faith involved in that at all. And so for us kind of to pull back and say, how come this is so important that Jesus calls the 12 over to say, watch what this woman did. Is it about giving? Not really. He's using giving as a concrete example of this larger principle that we're going to get at. I would say this about giving that you can take away from this. 2 Corinthians 8.12, you can go look it up. Your gift is acceptable based on what you have, not based on what you don't. God, that, he doesn't care about amounts. The gifts are, Paul says if, if you're willing, if the willingness is there, then your gift is acceptable based on what you have, not what, based on what you don't. So this lady doesn't need to hang her head because she put in a penny. That's not what God <coughs> looks at. Easy to pick on celebrities because what they do is out in public. After the, all of the stuff in Japan with the tsunami and earthquake and nuclear thing, you know, you had all these people who were getting on board to give. Sandra Bullock gave a million dollars for the American Red Cross. That's a lot of money. Y'all know how much money she made last year? $56 million. That's 1.8%. I did that math beforehand. 1.8%. It's a ton of money. The Red Cross can buy a whole lot more whatever they buy with her million dollars than what some of y'all gave when we took up an offering for Crash Japan. Nobody in here gave a million. Nobody in here came close to a million. Our whole church didn't come close to a million. The Red Cross can do more with what she gave than with what we gave collectively or what any one of us individually gave. But when God opens his ledger, it might look different. I'm not sure that one million out of 56 million, I don't know if that crosses the faith threshold. I'm not sure that she actually had to, I'm not sure that was an expression of trusting God when she wrote that check. And for some of you, when you wrote a check for $100, it was. So the Red Cross can do more with hers, but God can do more with yours. Different way of measuring. It's a different accounting system. When it comes to giving, the dollar amounts don't matter, which is wonderful if you don't have a lot. Then you don't have to feel bad about not giving a lot. And the fact that the dollar amounts don't matter, that pinches a little bit if you do have a lot. And we've talked before, we all do. Because those guys probably felt pretty good about the checks they were dropping in those trumpets. And they probably had stained glass windows with their in memory of underneath it and pews named after them and all of that stuff. They were writing big checks, which paid for big things. It's difficult when you have a lot to actually give enough that it becomes an expression of faith and trust. 
That's why Jesus said it's difficult. He actually said it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God because there's so much stuff that we have, it's hard to actually get to a point where I have to trust him. How much would, again, if we just stereotype her, she might be a wonderful lady, how much stuff does Sandra Bullock, how, how big a check does she have to write before she actually has to trust Jesus for anything in her life? And we would say, well, she obviously she needs to trust him for her salvation, for forgiveness. Is that even on the radar screen when you can have everything that you want by picking up the phone? Or actually you have somebody else pick up the phone and make the call for you. You see, it's difficult. And so again, for us, the pull away, money doesn't, he doesn't care about the amount. What he's looking for are expressions of faith. The bigger issue, and the one that I really want us to focus on, this lady, this widow, again, all of Mark, the second half of Mark kind of culminates in what she has done. And what he says, he's holding her up and saying, this lady, that's what I'm talking about. This is the, the kind of person that I want, which is totally counterintuitive to everything that they would have thought. In Mark 8, 34 through 39, Jesus goes through this thing. You probably, you know, you, you get it. Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Follow me. What good does it do to gain the whole world and lose your soul? That, you've heard all of that. We've talked about that before. This lady did that. She gave everything she had. Apparently she had two leptons, lepta, and she gave them both. She didn't hold on to either one of them. Jesus says that, uh, in, in Mark 10, 29 through 31, Anyone who gives up anything for me, you're going to get it back. She gave up everything for him. Again, he's holding her up. This is who I'm talking about. Three different times, I think it is. He says, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you want to be great, you've got to serve. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom of many. This lady, widows, they're at the bottom of the food chain socially. And again, he's holding her up. It's not the scribes with their white robes and their fancy titles. It's not the religious leaders. It's not all of the people who are associated with this magnificent temple that you're standing in. It's her, Miss Nobody, who literally, Miss Nobody. She's first. He holds her up. She gave more. She's the model. Y'all call her last. I call her first. He says in Mark, I think it's 13, unless we receive the kingdom of God. That's not true. Mark 11, unless we receive the kingdom of God like little children, we'll never enter it. We talked before, that means there's no plan B. There's no backup plan. There's no safety net. That's her. She gave everything. She didn't hold on to one of her coins. She is, she's saying, I don't know where she's getting her meal from. It, apparently, she put in everything that she had. She doesn't have a backup plan. That's the type of trust and dependency that Jesus holds up and says, that's what I want. And that's not just what I want from her, and that's not just what I want from the 12. That's what I want from everyone who follows me. All of these things that I've been telling you, you can look at this woman and she's a physical embodiment of that. Her putting those two half pennies into that silver trumpet, that is a concrete example of what it means to follow me. It means you, you give everything that you have. Whether it's out of obedience or devotion, it doesn't matter. My understanding of the Old Testament, I'm not sure what law she was following in putting those two coins in. There's, there's all kinds of oral laws that I don't know so it could have been out of obedience. It could have been out of devotion. It doesn't matter. She gave everything that she had. You receive the kingdom like a child. You don't have a backup plan. There is no safety net. There is no plan B, just like her, everything. You want to be first, then you've got to be last. You learn how to covet second place, not first place. And then I'll make you first, just like I did with this lady. Again, she's a picture of everything that Jesus wants. So the question for us is, well, where are we 
trusting God. We've talked before kind of the faith gap. So if this is my life that I can live, this is the life I can live in my own strength, with my own resources, all of that, and this is the life that I'm actually living, then this space in between, that's faith, that's trust, that's where I need Jesus. Because this is all I can do, and this is what I'm actually doing. So if he doesn't help me, I'm done. Unfortunately for most of us, they tend to overlap. And the life that we're actually living is the life that we can live in our own strength. There's not a lot of gaps. There's not a lot of space in our life where we need Jesus. If you put it maybe a little more negatively, if tomorrow morning you woke up and God kind of withdrew his hand from your life, would it make a lick of difference in any area? At all. Would would you even know? Would I even know if somehow God pulled back from me? There's a story in Numbers where Moses, uh, they send spies into the promised land, and all 12 of these guys come back, and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, we can do this. They're tough guys, but we can do this. And the other ten are, no, we don't have a shot. Those guys are giants. We're grasshoppers. We're done. And the people believe the bad report, and they're unwilling to take the land. And so God takes them out to the woodshed and punishes them pretty strongly. And so the next day, which is typical of us after we've been punished, where we say, all right, well, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to go take this land. And Moses says, don't. God is not with you. And they say, we can do this. And they go, and they get their heads handed to them when they try to attack this land, and that there's a huge difference between God being with you and God being not. It's a difference between victory and defeat. But for most of us in our lives, because there are no faith gaps, there is no difference for us. Not, not guilt, just reality. I was talking to a guy this week. He really felt like God put in his heart to start this company. And um, he's been kind of playing around with it for three or four or five months. And a couple of weeks ago, he was also um, a server at a restaurant. A couple of weeks ago, he turned in his two-week notice. So I've got to go all in with this. That's a faith gap. This was the life that he was living. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I, this company, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to put everything I've got into it. And so he created this gap. Again, we can say it's out of obedience, or you can say it's reckless. To me, he created an opportunity for Jesus to step in. Whether it's successful or not, we'll see. A guy in our church today, he spoke at a Sunday school class at First Methodist that was created a faith gap for him. He'd say he's not a public speaker. Those are not necessarily his people. He said yes to the opportunity. That that created some space where he needed Jesus beyond what he's able to do. Some of you maybe are considering staying home. You're you're married. You've maybe just had children. You're used to two incomes, and you're trying to figure out how in the world can we make it on one. And I'm not saying whether you should or you shouldn't, but that creates a faith gap, that decision of we're going to do it on one. I haven't, my salary hasn't gone up enough to cover yours, but I feel like it's more important for me to be home with this kid right now. And so I'm going to choose to stay home. That creates a faith gap. We don't want to be reckless, but if out of obedience or out of devotion, you'll take a step, it creates space where you need Jesus. Those are the faith gaps that we all need to be intentionally cultivating because we all have so much, and I don't just mean money, because we all have so much where we live, it's easy for us to live a pretty big life without Jesus. Again, stereotype the celebrities. It's easy for someone 
in that world to do anything without Jesus. That's why, again, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And we need to realize that heading applies to us in a lot of ways. We're rich, too, in the difficulties we have with truly trusting Jesus are because we don't have to a lot. Some of the places where Corey and Jesse are going to go, they don't have any... They, it's Jesus or nothing, literally. Jesus or nothing. In those situations, it's much easier to trust Jesus because you've got no other options. You've got tons of options. It makes it that much more difficult, and that's why we have to intentionally create these spaces where we need him to fill in. And they don't have to be big and bold and audacious. They can be personal, just like this lady throwing in two coins into an offering, but that nobody else saw. It's just because Jesus was looking at it that it was even noticed. In God's eyes, he saw it all, and it, it got marked down in the ledger. But the only reason we know is because Jesus happened to notice. So I want to close with this. Bo, you guys can come back up. Where, where's, the, where's the space? Let's be honest. Are there gaps? Are there places in your life? I mean, you can look at it like this. Are there places in your life where if Jesus doesn't make himself known, if he doesn't show up, it's just not going to work because it's beyond your ability to carry and beyond your ability to do. Don't soft sell that. Just be honest. If there aren't, then just say, you know what? There really aren't. And that's a, that's a difficulty for the culture that we live in is we constantly have to look for opportunities out of devotion or obedience to create space for God to fill. We're not saved by grace through knowledge. We're not saved by grace through giving. We're not saved by grace through experiences. We're not saved by grace through prayer. We're not saved by grace through attendance and showing up. We're not saved by grace through service. We're saved by grace through faith. We need that trust active in our life. Many of you have been on short-term mission experiences, and part of the beauty of that is it puts you in a position. It, the experience itself creates the space where you need Jesus. And that's why you want to go back when you come home. And what's difficult for us, most of us, we're not Corey and Jesse. 2% of the people spend significant time cross-culturally overseas. That's not us. Most of us, this is, this is your thing. It's Cobb County. Get married, have some kids, get a job. That's, that's it for you. And that's it for me. It's regular life, and it can seem less spiritual. It's not. We just need to be more intentional in creating these faith opportunities where we need Jesus to work. So let's pray. God, I thank you for every man and woman in this room. And I know you desire when you look at us. You're, you're wanting us to live beyond ourselves. Not in terms of notoriety, not in terms of uh, reputation, none of that. Just like this little old widow lived beyond herself. That's what you're looking for. That's what it means to follow you. And it is not easy in Marietta to cultivate opportunities where we need you because we've got so much. And so, Lord, I pray you would speak to every heart in this room in the next couple of minutes. Do we need to be like the little old lady and give some stuff so we've got less, so we're forced to trust you? Or maybe it's different. We need to grab on to an opportunity that's outside of our ability to accomplish. Whichever one of those things it is, if it's getting rid of or taking on more, whatever would create the opportunities for us to have to trust you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us about that now.
And Lord, I pray that it would become not just a one-time kind of a, it would not be a short-term mission experience, something we did when we were in college. And we can kind of look back on that. Become a lifestyle for us individually, as families, as a church, that we'd be a people of faith, a people who are constantly pushing into trusting you. For some of you, it's with your children. That's the faith gap, is letting them go on some level. decision to be more um, straightforward with a client about your relationship with Jesus. That's the faith gap. Moves you out of professional talk into heart talk. For a couple of families, it's the decision as a family to go on a mission trip. I don't know where, but that's that's the faith step for you. Not just because you're going, but because you're including your children in your spiritual life in a more intentional way. You're not just looking for, you know, Penny or Bible school or Christian school to kind of disciple them. You're taking on that responsibility, maybe in a way that you haven't before. Maybe the reluctance there is because that wasn't modeled for you, but that, that's okay. Lord, I pray whatever it is that you would speak to us and that we would be quick to obey in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand up. If you're on the ministry teams, if you come forward, we'd love to pray with you about anything.